0: section four of the lives of the queens of england volume six by agnes and elizabeth strickland this librivox recording is in the public domain elizabeth chapter two part one the disastrous termination of elizabeth's first love affair appears to have had the salutary effect of inclining her to habits of a studious and reflective character she was for a time under a cloud and during the profound retirement in which she was doomed to remain for at least a year after the execution of the lord admiral the energies of her active mind found employment and solace in the pursuits of learning she assumed a grave and sedate demeanor withal and bestowed much attention on theology which the polemic spirit of the times rendered a subject of powerful interest her new governess lady Turwitt, had been the friend of the late queen katharine parr and was one of the learned females who had supported the doctrines of the reformation and narrowly escaped the fiery crown of martyrdom and though elizabeth had in the first instance defied her authority there is reason to believe that she was reconciled to her after the first effervescence of her high spirit had subsided and the assimilation of their religious feelings produced sympathy and goodwill between them a curious little devotional volume is mentioned by Anthony A. Wood as having once belonged to Queen Elizabeth, which was compiled by this lady for her use. When acting as her preceptress, it was of miniature size, bound in solid gold, and entitled, Lady Elizabeth Tyrwhit's Morning and Evening Prayers, with divers hymns and meditations. It was probably about this period, that elizabeth translated an italian sermon of ochinus which she transcribed in a hand of great beauty and sent to her royal brother as a new year's gift the dedication is dated enfield december thirtieth but the year is not specified the manuscript is now in the bodleian library not in vain did elizabeth labour to efface the memory of her early indiscretion by establishing a reputation for learning and piety the learned roger ashcom under whom she perfected herself in the study of the classics in his letters to Sturmius, the rector of the protestant university at strasburg is enthusiastic in his encomiums on his royal pupil of whose scholastic attainments he is justly proud numberless honourable ladies of the present time says he surpass the daughters of sir thomas more in every kind of learning but amongst them all my illustrious mistress the lady elizabeth shines like a star excelling them more by the splendour of her virtues than by the glory of her royal birth in the variety of her commendable qualities i am less perplexed to find matter for the highest panegyric than to circumscribe that panegyric within just bounds yet i shall mention nothing respecting her but what has come under my own observation for two years she pursued the study of Greek and Latin under my tuition, but the foundations of her knowledge in both languages were laid by the diligent instruction of William Grindal, my late beloved friend, and seven years my pupil in classical learning at Cambridge. From this university he was summoned by John Cheek to court, where he soon after received the appointment of tutor to this lady. After some years, when through her native genius, aided by the efforts of so excellent a master she had made a great progress in learning and grindal by his merit and favour of his mistress might have aspired to high dignities he was snatched away by a sudden illness i was appointed to succeed him in his office and the work which he had so happily begun without my assistance indeed but not without some counsels of mine i diligently laboured to complete now however released from the throng of a court and restored to the felicity of my former learned leisure i enjoy through the bounty of the king an honourable appointment in this university the lady elizabeth has completed her sixteenth year and so much solidity of understanding such courtesy united with dignity have never been observed at so early an age she has the most ardent love of true religion and the best kind of literature the constitution of her mind is exempt from female weakness and she is endued with masculine power of application no apprehension can be quicker than hers no memory more retentive french and italian she speaks like english latin with fluency propriety and judgment she also spoke greek with me frequently willingly and moderately well nothing can be more elegant than her handwriting whether in the greek or the roman character in music she is very skilful but does not greatly delight with respect to her personal decoration she greatly prefers a simple elegance to show and splendour so despising the outward adorning of plaiting the hair and wearing of gold that in the whole manner of her life she rather resembles hippolyta than phaedra she read with me almost the whole of cicero and a great part of livy from those two authors her knowledge of the latin language has been almost exclusively derived the beginning of the day was always devoted by her to the new testament in greek after which she read select orations of isocrates and the tragedies of sophocles which i judge best adapted to supply her tongue with the purest diction her mind with the most excellent precepts and her exalted station with a defense against the utmost power of fortune for her religious instruction she drew first from the fountains of scripture and afterwards from saint cyprian the commonplaces of melancthon and similar works which convey pure doctrine in elegant language in every kind of writing she easily detected any ill adapted or far-fetched expression she could not bear those feeble imitators of erasmus who bind the latin language in the fetters of miserable proverbs on the other hand she approved a style chaste in propriety and beautiful in perspicuity and she greatly admired metaphors when not too violent and antithesis when just and happily opposed by a diligent attention to these particulars her ear became so practised and so nice that there was nothing in greek latin or english prose or verse which according to its merits or defects she did not either reject with disgust or receive with the highest delight the letters from which these passages have been extracted were written by Ashcombe in latin in the year fifteen fifty when he had for some reason been compelled to withdraw from his situation in elizabeth's household the commendations of this great scholar had probably some share in restoring her to the favour of the learned young king her brother whose early affection for the dearly loved companion of his infancy appears to have been revived after a time and though the jealousy of the selfish statesman who held him in thrall prevented the princely boy from gratifying his yearnings for her presence he wrote to her to send him her portrait elizabeth in her reverential and somewhat pedantic epistle in reply certainly gives abundant evidence of the taste for metaphors to which ashcombe adverts in his letters to stermius letter from the princess elizabeth to king edward the sixth with a present of her portrait like as the rich man that daily gathereth riches to riches and to one bag of money layeth a great sort till it come to infinite so methinks your majesty not being sufficed with many benefits and gentlenesses showed to me afore this time doth now increase them in asking and desiring where you may bid and command requiring a thing not worthy the desiring for itself but made worthy for your highness's request my picture i mean in which if the inward good mind towards your grace might as well be declared as the outward face and countenance shall be seen i would not have tarried the commandment but prevented it nor have been the last to grant but the first to offer it FOR THE FACE I GRANT I MIGHT WELL BLUSH TO OFFER, BUT THE MIND I SHALL NEVER BE ASHAMED TO PRESENT. FOR THOUGH FROM THE GRACE OF THE PICTURE THE COLORS MAY FADE BY TIME, MAY GIVE BY WEATHER, MAY BE SPOTTED BY CHANCE, YET THE OTHER, NOR TIME WITH HER SWIFT WINGS SHALL OVERTAKE, NOR THE MISTY CLOUDS WITH THEIR LOWERINGS MAY DARKEN, NOR CHANCE WITH HER SLIPPERY FOOT MAY OVERTHROW. OF THIS, ALTHOUGH YET THE PROOF COULD NOT BE GREAT, because the occasions hath been but small, notwithstanding as a dog hath a day, so may I perchance have time to declare it in deeds, where now I do write them but in words. And further, I shall most humbly beseech your majesty, that when you shall look on my picture, you will vouchsafe to think, that, as you have put the outward shadow of the body afore you, so my inward mind wisheth, that the body itself were oftener in your presence, how be it? because both my so being i think i could do your majesty little pleasure though myself great good and again because i see as yet not the time agreeing thereunto i shall learn to follow the saying of oris or Horace: feris non culpus quad vitare non potest and thus i will troubling your majesty i fear and with my most humble thanks beseeching god long to preserve you to his honour to your comfort to the realms profit and to my joy from hatfield this fifteenth day of may your majesty's most humble sister elizabeth in the summer of fifteen fifty elizabeth had succeeded in reinstating her trusty cofferer thomas perry in his old office and she employed him to write to the newly appointed secretary of state william cecil afterwards lord burleigh to solicit him to bestow the parsonage of harptree in the county of somerset on john kenyon the yeoman of her robes a lamentable instance of an unqualified layman through the patronage of the great devouring that property which was destined for the support of efficient ministers of the church such persons employed incompetent curates as their substitutes at a starving salary to the great injury and dissatisfaction of the congregation Harry's letter is dated September 22nd, from Ashridge. Her grace, he says, hath been long troubled with rooms, or rheumatism, but now, thanks be to the Lord, is nearly well again, and shortly ye shall hear from her grace again. A good understanding appears to have been early established between Elizabeth and Cecil, which possibly might be one of the undercurrents that led to her recall to court, where however she did not return till after the first disgrace of the duke of somerset on the seventeenth of march fifteen fifty one she emerged from the profound retirement in which she had remained since her disgrace in fifteen forty-nine, and came in state to visit the king her brother she rode on horseback through london to st james's palace attended by a great company of lords knights and gentlemen and after her about two hundred ladies on the nineteenth she came from st james's through the park to the court the way from the park gate to the court was spread with fine sand she was attended by a very honourable confluence of noble and worshipful persons of both sexes and was received with much ceremony at the court gate that wily politician the earl of warwick afterwards duke of northumberland had considered elizabeth young and neglected as she was of sufficient political importance to send her a duplicate of the curious letter addressed by the new council jointly to her and her sister the lady mary in which a statement is given of the asserted misdemeanours of somerset and their proceedings against him the council were now at issue with mary on the grounds of her adherence to the ancient doctrines and as a conference had been appointed between her and her opponents on the eighteenth of march it might be to divert popular attention from her and her cause that the younger and fairer sister of the sovereign was permitted to make her public entrance into london on the preceding day and that she was treated with so many marks of unwonted respect thus we see mary makes her public entry on the eighteenth with her train all decorated with black rosaries and crosses and on the nineteenth elizabeth is again shown to the people as if to obliterate any interest that might have been excited by the appearance of the elder princess the love of edward the sixth for elizabeth was so very great according to camden that he never spoke of her by any other title than his dearest sister or his sweet sister temperance elizabeth at this period affected extreme simplicity of dress in conformity to the mode which the rigid rules of the calvinist church of geneva was rendering general among the stricter portion of those noble ladies who professed the doctrines of the reformation the king her father says dr Aylmer, left her rich clothes and jewels and i know it to be true that in seven years after his death she never in all that time looked upon that rich attire and precious jewels but once and that against her will and that there never came gold or stone upon her head till her sister forced her to lay off her former soberness and bear her company in her glittering gayness and then she so wore it that all men might see that her body carried that which her heart misliked i am sure that her maidenly apparel which she used in king edward's time made the noblemen's wives and daughters ashamed to be dressed and painted like peacocks being more moved with her more virtuous example than with all that ever paul or peter wrote touching that matter the first opening charms of youth elizabeth well knew required no extraneous adornments and her classic tastes taught her that the elaborate magnificence of the costumes of her brother's court tended to obscure rather than enhance those graces which belonged to the morning bloom of life the plainness and modesty of the princess elizabeth's costume was particularly noticed during the splendid festivities that took place on the occasion of the visit of the queen dowager of scotland mary of lorraine to the court of edward the sixth in october fifteen fifty one the advent of the beautiful regent of the sister kingdom and her french ladies of honour fresh from the gay and gallant louvre produced no slight excitement among the noble bells of king edward's court and it seems that a sudden and complete revolution in dress took place in consequence of the new fashions that were then imported by queen mary and her brilliant cortege so that all the ladies went with their hair frounced curled and double curled except the princess elizabeth who altered nothing says aylmer but kept her old maiden shamefacedness at a later period of life elizabeth made up in the exuberance of her ornaments and the fantastic extravagance of her dress for the simplicity of her attire when in the bloom of sweet seventeen what would her reverend eulogist have said if while penning these passages in her honour the vision of her three thousand gowns and the eighty wigs of divers coloured hair in which his royal heroine finally rejoiced could have arisen in array before his mental eye to mark the difference between the elizabeth of seventeen and the elizabeth of seventy the elizabeth of seventeen had however a purpose to answer and a part to play neither of which were compatible with the indulgence of her natural vanity and the inordinate love of dress which the popular preachers of her brother's court were perpetually denouncing from the pulpit her purpose was the re-establishment of that fair fame which had been sullied by the cruel implication of her name by the protector somerset and his creatures in the proceedings against the lord admiral and in this she had by the circumspection of her conduct the unremitting manner in which she had since that mortifying period devoted herself to the pursuits of learning and theology so fully succeeded that she was now regarded as a pattern for all the youthful ladies of the court the part which she was ambitious of performing was that of the heroine of the reform party in england even as her sister mary was of the catholic portion of the people that elizabeth was already so considered and that the royal sisters were early placed in incipient rivalry to each other by the respective partisans of the warring creeds which divided the land may be gathered from the observations of their youthful cousin lady jane grey when urged to wear the costly dress that had been presented to her by mary nay that were a shame to follow my lady mary who leaveth god's word and leave my lady elizabeth who followeth god's word elizabeth wisely took no visible part in the struggle between the dudley and seymour factions though there is reason to believe that somerset tried to enlist her on his side the following interrogatory was put to him on one of his examinations whether he did not consent that vain should labour the lady elizabeth to be offended with the duke of northumberland then earl of warwick the earl of pembroke and others of his council the answer to this query has not been found or it might possibly throw some light on the history of elizabeth at this period she certainly had no cause to cherish the slightest friendship for somerset for though it appears from her letter to her sister mary that he had succeeded in persuading her that he was not guilty of his brother's death yet by bringing all the particulars of the indiscretions that had taken place between her and the admiral before the council he had acted with the utmost cruelty towards herself, and cast a blight on her morning flower of life. If we may believe Letty, Somerset sent a piteous supplication to Elizabeth from the tower, imploring her to go to the king, and exert her powerful influence to obtain his pardon, and she wrote to him in reply, that being so young a woman, she had no power to do anything in his behalf, and assured him, that the king was surrounded by those who took good care to prevent her from approaching too near the court and she had no more opportunity of access to his majesty than himself the fall of somerset made at first no other difference to elizabeth than the transfer of her applications to the restoration of durham house from him to the duke of northumberland who had obtained the grant of that portion of somerset's illegally acquired property elizabeth persisted in asserting her claims to this demesne and that with a high hand for she addressed an appeal to the lord chancellor on the subject she openly expressed her displeasure that northumberland should have asked it of the king without first ascertaining her disposition touching it she made a peremptory demand that the house should be delivered up to her and sent word to northumberland that she was determined to come and see the king at candlemas and request that she might have the use of st james's palace for her abode pro tempore because she could not have her things so soon ready at the strand house but concludes northumberland after relating these energetic proceedings of the young lady i am sure her grace would have done no less though she had kept durham house this observation certainly refers to her wish of occupying st james's palace it was, however, no part of Northumberland's policy to allow either of the sisters of the young king to enjoy the opportunity of personal intercourse with him, and least of all, Elizabeth, whom, from the tender friendship that had ever united them, and more than all, the conformity of her profession with Edward's religious opinions, he might have naturally been desirous of appointing as his successor, when his brief term of royalty was drawing to a close that elizabeth made an attempt to visit her royal brother in his sickness at what period is uncertain and that she was circumvented in her intention and intercepted on her approach to the metropolis by the agents of the faction that had possession of his person she herself informs him in the following letter in which she evinces a truly sisterly solicitude for his health letter from the princess elizabeth to king edward the sixth like as a shipman in stormy weather plucks down the sails tarrying for better winds so did i most noble king in my unfortunate chance on thursday pluck down the high sails of my joy and comfort and do trust one day that as troublesome waves have repulsed me backward so a gentle wind will bring me forward to my haven two chief occasions moved me much and grieved me greatly the one for that i doubted your majesty's health the other because for all my long tarrying i went without that i came for of the first i am relieved in a part both that i understood of your health and that also your majesty's lodging is not far from my lord marquis's chamber of my other grief i am not eased but the best is that whatsoever other folks will suspect i intend not to fear your grace's good will which i know that i never deserve to forfeit so i trust will still stick by me for if your grace's advice that i should return whose will is a commandment had not been, I would not have made the half of my way the end of my journey and thus, as one desirous to hear of your majesty's health, though unfortunate to see it, I shall pray god for ever to preserve you from hatfield this present saturday your majesty's humble sister to commandment elizabeth to the king's most excellent majesty the same power that employed to prevent the visit of elizabeth to her sick perhaps dying brother probably deprived him of the satisfaction of receiving the letter which informed him that such had been her intention it was the interest of those unprincipled statesmen to instil feelings of bitterness into the heart of the poor young king against those to whom the fond ties of natural affection had once so strongly united him the tenor of edward the sixth will and the testimony of the persons who were about him at the time of his death proved that he was at last no less estranged from elizabeth his sweetest sister temperance as he was formerly wont to call her than from mary whose recusancy had been urged against her as a reasonable ground for exclusion from the throne both were alike excluded from their natural places in the succession and deprived of the benefit of their father's nomination in the act for settling the royal succession in the year fifteen forty four and subsequently in his will mary first because of her papistry and secondly because she had been declared illegitimate the reproach of papistry could not with any consistency be objected to elizabeth for had not the lady jane grey herself the innocent rival for her title declared that the lady elizabeth was a follower of god's word and as to the second objection of their declaring mary illegitimate the direct contrary had been the result for the establishment of the legitimacy of either of these sisters no matter which must infallibly have stigmatized the birth of the other the next objection to mary and elizabeth was that being only sisters to edward by the half-blood they could not be his lawful heirs but this was indeed a fallacy for their title was derived from the same royal father from whom edward inherited the throne and would in no respect have been strengthened by the comparatively mean blood of jane seymour even if they had been her daughters by the late king the third reason given for the exclusion of edward's sisters was that they might marry foreign princes and thus be the means of bringing papistry into england again which lady jane grey could not do as she was already married to the son of the duke of northumberland latimer preached in favour of the exclusion of elizabeth as well as mary declaring that it was better that god should take away the ladies mary and elizabeth than that by marrying foreign princes they should endanger the existence of the reformed church ridley set forth the same doctrine although it was well known that elizabeth had rejected the offer of one foreign prince and had evinced a disinclination to marriage altogether. Nothing, therefore, could be more unfair than rejecting her, for fear of a contingency that never might, and in fact, never did happen. The name of conscience was, however, the watchword under which Northumberland and his accomplices had carried their point with their pious young sovereign, when they induced him to set aside the rightful heirs, and bequeath the crown to Lady Jane Grey. Elizabeth kept her state at Hatfield House during the last few months of Edward's reign. The expenses of her household amounted to an average of £3,938, according to one of her household books, from October 1st, 5th of Edward the sixth, to the last day of September in the sixth year of that prince, in the possession of Lord Strangford. It is entitled, the account of thomas perry esq Cofferer to the right excellent princess the lady elizabeth her grace the king's majesty's most honourable sister the above was the style and title used by elizabeth during her royal brother's reign every page of the book is signed at the bottom by her own hand her cellar appears to have been well stocked with beer sweet wine rhenish and gascon wines lamprey pies were once entered as a present the wages of her household servants, for a quarter of a year, amounted to eighty-two pounds, seventeen shillings, eight pence. The liveries for velvet coats, for thirteen gentlemen, at forty shillings the coat, amounted to twenty-six pounds. The liveries of her yeomen, to seventy-eight pounds, eighteen shillings. She paid for the making of her turnspits coats, nine shillings and two pence. Given in alms at sundry times, to poor men and women, seven pounds, 15 shillings, eight pence. Among the entries for the chamber and robes are the following. Paid to John Spithonius, the 17th of May, for books, and to Mr. Allen for a Bible, 27 shillings, four pence. Paid to Edmund Allen for a Bible, 20 shillings. Third of November, to the keeper of Hertford Jail, for fees of John Wingfield, being in ward, 13 shillings, four pence paid fourteenth of december to blanche perry for her half-year's annuity a hundred shillings and to blanche courtney for the like sixty-six shillings eight pence paid december fourteenth at the christening of mr pendred's child by warrant doth appear one shilling paid in reward unto sundry persons at st james's her grace then being there namely the king's footman eleven shillings the underkeeper of st james's ten shillings the gardener, five shillings, to one Russell, groom of the king's great chamber, ten shillings, to the wardrobe, eleven shillings, the violins, ten shillings, a Frenchman that gave a book to her grace, ten shillings, the keeper of the park gate at St. James's, ten shillings. From another of Elizabeth's account books, in the possession of Gustavus Brander, Esquire, the Antiquarian Repertory quotes the following additional items. Two French hoods, two pounds, nine shillings, nine pence. Half a yard and two nails of velvet. Four partlets, 18 shillings, nine pence. Paid to Edward Allen for a Bible, one pound. Paid to the Kings, Edward the Sixth Droner or Bagpiper, and Pfeiffer, 20 shillings. To Mr. Haywood, 30 shillings and to Sebastian, towards the charge of the children, with the carriage of the player's garments, four pounds, 19 shillings. Paid to sundry persons at St. James's, her grace being there, nine pounds, 15 shillings. To Beaumont, the king's servant, for his boys that played before her grace, 10 shillings. In reward to certain persons, on the 10th of August, this was after Mary's accession. To former, who played on the lute, to Mr. Ashfield's servant, for two prize oxen and ten muttons, twenty shillings more. The harper, thirty shillings. To him that made her grace, a table of walnut tree, forty-four shillings, nine pence. To Mr. Caucus's servant, that brought her grace a sturgeon, six shillings, eight pence. To my lord Russell's minstrels, twenty shillings. Accounts of Thomas Perry, cofferer of her household, till October 1553 the last documentary record of elizabeth in the reign of edward the sixth is a letter addressed by her to the lords of the council relating to some of her landed property concerning which there was a dispute between her tenant smith and my lord privy seal the earl of bedford she complains of having been evilly handled by the minister though she denies taking part with smith in the controversy against him all she wishes is she says to enjoy her own right and quietness. She requests, in conclusion, her humble commendations to the king's majesty, for whose health, she says, I pray daily and daily, and evermore shall so do, during my life. At Hatfield, the last day of May, 1553. End of section 4